Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here, and welcome back to your high vibration life. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Gerald Pollack, and we mentioned him at the end of Dr. Dietrich Klinghart's interview with me, which I absolutely loved, and I asked him for just a few actionable things that you could do to raise your vibration. One of the things he talked about was getting in an infrared sauna every day, which I'm a big fan of, and I have an infrared sauna in my own home. And another thing he said is to read Dr. Gerald Pollack's book, The Fourth Phase of Water. So today I interview Dr. Pollack, who received a PhD in biomedical engineering from the University of Pennsylvania in 1968. He joined the University of Washington faculty, and he's now a professor of bioengineering. He's also the founding editor-in-chief of the journal Water. He has a fascinating background as a scientist studying muscles and bringing back the study of water. Hi, Dr. Gerald Pollack, or Jerry. Thank you so much for joining us today on Your High Vibration Life. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be here with you, Robin. I've really been enjoying your book. Um, We came together, you and I, because we did some amazing interviews with Dr. Dietrich Klinghart, who you know. And he, at the end of his interview, said that four things that you should do. I said, give me four actionable things that someone could do to raise their vibration. And And he literally, out of all things in the world, said... Then one of those four was get Jerry Pollock's book, The Fourth Phase of Water. And so I immediately ordered it and read it. And I was so amazed at how you are so disruptive in your thinking of what water is. And you point out how little we actually know about water. How is it possible that we don't know much about water? That's a that's a really good question, Robin. And I think I have thought about it. I think the reason is that we used to know a lot more about water. In fact, in fact, uh, water was a, a really common subject of, of interest to scientists, especially around the uh, 1940s and 50s and, uh, and such. And then there was the advent of, of sophisticated equipment. And the sophisticated equipment allowed scientists to look at individual molecules, to parts of molecules, and even parts of parts of the molecules. And of course, scientists being human and uh, as they are, um, scientists found it interesting to explore at levels mu- much deeper than than the entire cell. So, so, so scientists pulled apart. Especially, I'm talking mostly about the biological realm, but it actually is similar in physics and chemistry. The ability to study at deeper levels to find out more about the interstices of these molecules, um, and they forgot about water. You know, water. Water seems unimportant. Uh, water is considered uh, considered by biologists and biochemists as nothing more than than the background carrier of the more important molecules of life, the proteins, the nucleic acids. So it's like a bathtub in which these molecules bathe. And who's interested in the bathtub? And then uh, to supplement that, 
there were a few debacles that took place. The, the end result of, of these, um, I don't know if you'd call them scandals or, or what, they dissuaded scientists from investigating water. The first one was called polywater, uh, the polywater incident, and it took place oh, around the early 1960s, if I, if I have it right. Some Russians had discovered a kind of water that had really unusual properties. Uh, and it was just at the time that the West was becoming aware of Russian work because the Russian work was not translated. So it became translated and people began studying it. And a few groups got really interested because it looked like a, you know, a kind of water that nobody else had seen before. And so when it got to the West, the American and Western scientists were faced with a dilemma. Either the Russians had scored in a big way and found something really interesting, or it's time to show um, dramatically what fools they are. <laughs> and so... So many of the serious scientists began taking up the, the, the study of this un, unusual kind of water. Some of them found that, that it was actually an experimental artifact. It was not real. And that really took hold. Uh, so one group said uh, that when these Russians put the water in these thin capillary tubes and, and looked at all the interesting properties, they really, the Russians didn't even know it, but the water was actually leaching some of the silica from these glass tubes. So it wasn't pure water, as the Russians had suggested, but it was actually a kind of gel made of water and, and silica. And so they became a laughing stock of the scientific world. And it became a big scientific joke. And and, and those scientists w would go within, within a mile of studying anything that had to do with water. Very few scientists have been involved with water. That is changing. We we actually organize a meeting. It's in now in Bulgaria every October. It's called the the Physics, Chemistry, and Biology of Water. It's a wonderful meeting. It's exciting that after water uh, languishing as something to study for so long has been so revived. And I know that you have played a big role in that. But we're going to talk about, I really do want to talk about what these findings about water have to do with our health and our happiness. Like, what does this mean if this is happening in our cells, if there's a, if there's a, if water has memory, if water has social behavior, what does this mean for us that is sort of, you know, earth shaking? But I just want to back up for a quick second and look at the macro level of this. What you've basically said is that, you know, for a while they thought they knew everything about water and they thought they had it all broken down. It was all reductionistic. So let's back up before we talk a little bit more about the social behavior of water and about water memory and how what what homeopathy is, because I, I learned a lot more about that from your book, Jerry. But let's back up and just tell me, tell me really fast about your background and how you came to study water. I began uh, by studying muscles, uh, not kinesiology type, but at the molecular level, how 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 do actin and myosin, the major proteins that are inside of the muscle, how do they come together to produce produce motion? Well, there had been, and still is, a prevailing scientific view about how how these proteins come together to produce motion, and. Something didn't make sense uh, from that. The first thing that didn't make sense is that the theory simply didn't fit the evidence. We made many measurements of the mechanical properties of muscle and tried to relate those properties to the theory, and they just didn't fit. I also came to realize at the same time, and this is getting to your point, that scientists were taking into account the proteins inside the muscle, but they were neglecting the most abundant ingredient, and that was water. You know, muscle is two-thirds water. And so 
virtually every scientist studying muscle ignored the most abundant ingredient inside the muscle. The main point is that the water inside the cell is not like water in a glass. The molecules are ordered. So this is a kind of structured, structured water. Perhaps it's not a very good name because everything has structure. <laughs> and the understanding of this kind of water inside the cell was critical for understanding of, of life and, and certainly for how, how muscles contract. The fact that the water molecules are ordered inside the cell is really important. The water was not only critical for muscle and how muscles work, uh, but also for, for every, every major organelle inside the body. There's a simple transition from the structured water to the ordinary unstructured water was an absolute key to driving so many molecular processes. So structured water and unstructured water leads to understanding some key molecular processes. Tell yeah. me about that. Okay. I'll talk about muscles. We found out um, uh, that in the relaxed state, the muscles, the, the water is this kind of structured water. Um, the, it's like a liquid crystal. All the molecules are ordered and lined up. And in the relaxed state, muscles are compliant. You can stretch them and, and such, and nothing really is happening. And to initiate the contraction, what happens is that the water undergoes a transition from the um, uh, structured water to the unstructured water. This is a key. There are other 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 uh, suggested keys, like the arrival of calcium near the the proteins. But I think this is more fundamental. And there's evidence to to suggest that. And what what happens is that the molecules are ordinarily surrounded by this kind of um, structured water. I'll tell you more about the water because we learned quite a bit about uh, the so-called structured water. Um, and, and what happens is that these molecules, you might say they melt from into, into ordinary unstructured, the kind of water that you would be drinking. And, and the proteins then sense a, a difference of environment. And with that difference of environment, the proteins fold. They undergo a transition from, from their ordinary extended state to a contracted state. And that is what turns on the contraction of your muscle. Now, for your muscles to relax, this water needs then to return to the initial structured state. And this is an energy requiring process. And that's why, you know, if you've overused your muscles and there's a cramp, your muscles have a tendency to remain not in the relaxed state, but in the contracted state. And the reason for that is that in order to return them to the to the uncontracted or relaxed state, you need to put in energy. That energy is required to turn the water back from the unstructured state to the structured state. So this is this is one example. And the evidence that I've been able to adduce is that all of these processes require a transition from the ordered state to the disordered state. So water is so absolutely central. You know, one of my one of my heroes in in science is Albert St. Georgi, a famous, famous Hungarian scientist, his pithy statements, he made many of them. One of them was, life is water dancing to the tune of solids. So he knew that, that the water movements were absolutely critical for everything. Yeah, that's, that's been a lot of what I've learned from you about water is how much we don't know about it. And I don't know that any other scientist of my lifetime is talking about water in the mainstream. All right. So Tell us what do we not know about water that we should? 
what have we found that people didn't know before? We found, um, you know, when 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 we learn about of water uh, in middle school, perhaps or even even younger, we we learn that water has three phases. It has a solid phase, that's ice. It has the liquid phase, that's what we drink. And it has a vapor phase, the stuff that's um, floating in the air and makes clouds and such. Um, and oddly, um, even a hundred years ago, some scientists thought that there must be a fourth phase because if you take into account these three phases, it's really hard to explain so many chemical and physical features of water. Something is definitely missing from, from the equation. We found, uh, thanks to a, a Japanese colleague who alerted us, we found that an experimental preparation that we could use to look at it. And it turned out, this turned out to, to be a, a, a really amazing find. So, so the first experiments um, revealed that, that this kind of water was indeed ordered, liquid crystalline, and, and as it formed, just like ice forms, it pushes out everything, all of the, all of the debris and such, in order to, to create perfect crystals that are very well organized. And, and the way we found this is if we put into, into an experimental chamber filled with water and little particles, uh, we call them microspheres, little spheres, one micrometer in diameter. We put a piece of material whose surface is hydrophilic. So hydrophilic, you know, is water loving. It, it, it means that if you were to take the surface and put it, and lay it horizontally and drop the droplet of water on it, the water would spread out. Instead of like Teflon, which is hydrophobic, the water beads up. So if the water spreads out, we found um, uh, that, that something interesting happens. And so when the water meets such a hydrophilic surface, the water molecules that are near that surface undergo a massive change. And by the way, this change occurs not only in, in the layer of molecules that actually touch the surface, but in up to millions of molecular layers. We couldn't believe it, what we saw, but um, many experiments confirmed that this was so. It's, it's practically macroscopic, uh, what we saw. And what we saw is that as this region grew, as it grew, it pushed out all of those little microspheres that we were looking at. And, and so... Uh, after doing many experiments with many kinds of particles and and, and molecules uh, and many surfaces, uh, some Australian colleagues said, hey, you know, you got to give this a name, this, this area that has no microspheres. And so he suggested exclusion zone, which abbreviated is easy, which is cool because it's easy to remember. And but anyway, it's a, it, it's a zone, this so-called structured water is a zone that excludes solutes, uh, many kinds of solutes. And later we call this the fourth phase of water because we found that so many of its properties, uh, essentially every property we examined, and now there are roughly 10 different categories of physical chemical properties, they all differ uh, radically. Um, ordinary water has no charge to it, it's neutral. However, this is not neutral. Typically, it's negatively charged. So it means that the region next to these hydrophilic surfaces, the region of water, the EZ region, exclusion zone region, fourth phase region, has negative charge. And the region beyond it, uh, just ordinary water, then has positive charge. That's the first. The second, and 
maybe even more important in terms of health is is the energy that charges this battery and builds the ordered structure. Now you need to build, to go from disordered structure to an ordered structure, you need energy to do that. A good example of it is, is your room, which, you know, we all, we all tend to mess up our offices and rooms and it doesn't, doesn't take a lot of energy to do that. We just leave our papers around and our, uh, uh, drinking flasks and debris, but if you want to, if you want to get it ordered but again, put things away. It takes it takes energy to to do that, and um, and so it's the same with any system to order it to go from disordered water to ordered water. You need energy. We scratched our head for a long time before we came to realize where the source of energy was, and it was staring us right in the face, and we just never thought of it. It's light. How did we find out? A student in the lab was doing his experiment on, on, on the lab bench and sitting next to, next to him was one of these gooseneck lamps. And he did what he wasn't supposed to do, which is great. I love when the students do that. He took the lamp and shined the lamp on the chamber to see what went on. And uh, what he found was astounding. The region of the chamber or the region of the exclusion zone that had already been existing in the chamber the, the region that received the light grew and it grew like crazy. It was not, it was not 10% or something. It grew to be 300%. Then we, we went on obviously to do more experiments because it appeared that energy from light or photon energy was the energy, uh, at least one of the energies that's used to build the exclusion zone. We tried many studies with many different wavelengths of light ranging from the short wavelengths, the ultraviolet through the visible spectrum, through much of the infrared, the longer wavelengths. And we found that pretty much all of them had some effect. But when you got to the infrared wavelengths, particularly around three micrometer wavelength, it was the effect was amazing. It was immense. Just a very weak uh, LED light emitting diode that generated infrared could build the exclusion zone spectacularly. Wow. So, so I, I was going to ask you that um, because... Uh, Dr. Klinghart, who referred us to you, of course, was talking to us about how getting in an infrared sauna can be super powerful for raising your vibration. And so I told you that he said that reading your book is, is important because this easy water, which has been a lot of your life's work in these recent years, is where our bodies have the ability to receive charge to increase or decrease vibration. So tell us why we feel so good after a sauna, because that kind of brings together two of the things that uh, Dr. Klinghart talked about, your friend, Dr. Klinghart. So tell us why we feel so good after a sauna relative to uh, easy water and to infrared waves that we can get from the sun, but we can actually put a sauna in our house and use it. Yeah, um, the reason we feel good is because it, because of just what I mentioned. Because, but there's a bit of background uh, because in, infrared energy builds easy water, and so so the question then and and if you're an infrared sauna, uh, 
uh, then you get a lot of infrared. And if you have a lot of infrared, then the rate of growth of the easy water is is high. So you can get it from the sun, but if you concentrate it, then you can get a lot more of it more quickly. And I know he's also experimenting with with infrared devices that can um, localize, can supply infrared to different regions of your body, apparently with success. So so let's back up a step. You know, we all, we all think our cells are filled with water. We know that we're 70% water. Um, but in fact, the, the the type of water that fills our cells is not H2O. It's not the stuff we drink. It's actually the fourth phase water. Almost all of the water inside our cells is fourth phase water. And this easy water, by the way, is negatively charged. And and um, I've argued, um, contrary to what most people believe, is that the reasons our cells are negatively charged is not because of pumps and channels in the membrane, but because the water inside of our cells, the water is negatively charged. It's very simple. You have a you know a bag and you put a bag of negative stuff into it and you're going to have overall negativity. For healthy people, there's plenty of easy water surrounding every every protein in, inside the body. But, you know, those of us who are long in the tooth or those of us who have some, some kind of pathology, pathologies are often associated with dehydration, with not enough water. In some way, the amount of easy water inside the cells of pathological organs is deficient. And when the easy water is deficient, the proteins can't do their job. They can't fold in the way they're supposed to fold because they see an environment that's different, grossly different from their normal physiological environment. And so they they struggle. They can kind of begin bending and such and wiggle, but they can't do what they do naturally, which means, for example, that your, your muscles are not contracting properly or your nerves are not conducting uh, properly or your blood is not flowing properly or cells are not dividing properly, et cetera, et cetera. And you want to restore the, the, uh, the cell or organelle back to, to its normal condition. Well, how do you do that? Well, there are, I, I can tell you about half dozen different ways that we've been, we've been studying. And one of them is infrared sauna um, because it concentrates the infrared light. You get a lot of it. Your cells build easy water. And, you know, whatever, whatever issue that you have associated with not enough of that easy water should tend to reverse. And again, I think the underlying reason has mainly to do with the buildup of easy water inside our cells. And we need that easy water to function properly. Love it. And so tell me why we feel so good after we walk on the beach. It has to do with um, with the negative charge. So that let me explain. Um, this water is negatively charged. Our bodies are negatively charged. We and others have made those those measurements, and it's natural. We think we're neutral, but but in fact, we're built mostly of cells, and the cells are negatively charged. So when you add up, you know, the the sum of the parts you get to negative charge. And also even the extracellular tissues are negatively charged. So we're negative, negatively charged and we try hard to get rid of positive charge. For example, every time we breathe out, we breathe CO2 and water vapor, um, put the two together, that's carbonic acid, carbonic acid, protons, we get rid of protons, we breathe out protons, get rid of that positive charge. So now if we're not feeling completely 
uh, up to par, um, or even if we are, we walk on the beach. So what happens if we walk barefoot on the beach? Well, we connect to the earth. And, and the usual, usual understanding of this is, is, well, you know, there's some perhaps psychological effect of bonding with Mother Earth, and, and there may be something to that. However, there's something more, and, and that is something I discovered only 10 years ago and, and completely surprised and astounded to find a, a truth. I subsequently could, could confirm that the Earth is not neutral. It's negatively charged. So what are you doing when you walk on the beach? Well, you're connecting your body with a practically infinite source of negative charge. You sop up that negative charge, and you need that negative charge for building easy water. Easy water is negatively charged, so you take water and electrons that are coming from the earth that helps to rebuild and restore your easy water. Wonderful. So tell me about water having memory. I know that this relates a lot to the study of homeopathy, which is still to this day really controversial. Do you believe that water has memory? And what does that have to do with the whole field of medicine that is homeopathy? If you think about the process of homeopathy, um, what you think is you start with some substance, usually a natural substance, and you take one part nine parts water or 99 parts water and mix them together and shake it. And then you take one part and again, mix it with nine parts or 99 parts water, shake it. And you keep doing that. And of course, by conventional analysis, what happens is that original substance keeps getting diluted by 10 times or a hundred times, et cetera. And you keep, when you keep doing that, eventually when you do this process, say 20 or 25 times, then statistically, um, you have nothing left except water. And if that water has the same effect of the original, then the implication is that the water must have some memory of molecules in which it was in contact. That appears wrong. And, and the reason I say this so dogmatically is not because of our experiments, but a famous and distinguished Russian scientist uh, his name is Konovalov, started studying what happens when you do high dilutions, and the results are shocking. So what happens is not what you expect. What happens is when you do the first dilution and the second, it, it's pretty much as you expect, third, fourth. When you get to the fifth or sixth dilution, what happens is instead of the substance becoming more diluted, what, what you get is these little aggregates, he calls them nano aggregates, and they consist of water and presumably some of the initial substance. And the next solution, these nano aggregates grow, and the next solution, they grow more. And then they reach a peak, and next solution, they begin to, uh, they're on the wane, um, and next solution, fewer, and so on. And then nothing happens with the next four or five or six solutions, and then the process begins again, and they build up and up and up, and then down and down and down, and this keeps repeating indefinitely. You see, so something is different from, from what we think, and good possibility that some of, uh, of the original ha has remained, and and these nano aggregates obviously consist mostly of water. Otherwise, um, I mean, what else is there in, in, in there? And I presumably this water is easy water. See, so you have nano aggregates consisting of some of the original stuff plus easy water. 
he found also that if you follow the standard homeopathic procedure, which is to shake violently after each one, then then you get the result that I just related to you. If you don't shake, you don't get the result. So the shaking appears to be critical. Also, if you block off the energy from the environment, you don't get the same result. So two things are critical. One is the shaking. That's a, an integral part of the homeopathic uh, procedure. And you must have energy from the environment. And so so these, these features are similar to the features that are necessary for, for building easy water. Possible that the easy water is also storing information from those molecules because we know from many experiments that water, especially easy water, has a, has a structure, uh, a very well-organized structure that has the capability of storing information. We're studying this now in the, in the laboratory. But beyond that, it's, it's known that water itself, some kind of water, um, clearly has the capacity to store information, demonstrating some kind of memory. But anyway, the process of homeopathy is, is different from those who are ready to dismiss it because they think, oh, it's impossible. The physical chemistry says, no, what, what you expect is not what you get. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, people don't understand what homeopathy is. It takes a while to kind of explain it, but it really is about water's memory. And so that has everything to do with your, your work. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your TED talk. If we'll put it in the show notes that if you'd like to watch Dr. Jerry Pollack's TED talk on easy water and what this has to do with uh, science in the modern age, in the age of Einsteinian physics and biology, not just Newtonian, where we understand molecules and atoms and protons and electrons. We will link you to that. And we'll also link you to his book, The Fourth Phase of Water. So thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Jerry Pollack. Well, thank you, Robin, for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. 